Well, good morning once again. My name is Rick Lyman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Church, and it's my privilege today to share with you in God's living and active holy word. It's powerful. It transforms us, and the words we'll consider from Jesus' mouth today are part of a series that we launched for a Lenten time this year called No Wonder They Crucified Him. A lot of people think Jesus said a lot of nice things. He did say amazing things. He revealed tremendous truths that the world had never heard. He revealed the very heart of God in flesh to the human race for the first time in that way. But he also had some things to say that were a little tough to swallow for people. And today we're going to consider his call to us to become servants. We don't think of servants as something special often. We think of them as something necessary or people that serve us in various ways. But Jesus raised servanthood to the very pinnacle of what being a Christian was all about. I invite you to stand with me now as I read our passage of Scripture out of Matthew's Gospel. This is an instance in the Gospel of Matthew where a couple of believers, including one of their mothers, didn't quite get this concept of what servanthood was all about. I will read the first four verses from Matthew 20, uh, 20 verse to 24, and I'm invite you to read aloud when the scriptures are displayed on the screen in just a moment. So hear the word of the Lord. Gospel says, was then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left hand in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you and they drink from the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten other disciples heard this, they were very indignant with the two brothers. Now join me in reading the scripture. Jesus called them together. That slide's going to be up in a second, I know. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm just reading by myself. There we go. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we consider God's word, the Holy Spirit both worked through and in the life of Jesus in profound ways. And these words have been preserved so that we can listen to them this very day. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to inspire these words to be written for us, to speak to our hearts. Father God, we thank you for the power that you give to us in your word. You say in Hebrews that it is living, it's active, it goes deep down inside of us and brings about positive and good change. Lord, may it be so for us here today. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate your word to us that we'll both comprehend it with our minds, but even more importantly, empower us by your same spirit to live these things out this day. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. 
First, I want to extend my welcome to those of you who are joining us as trustees and elders and deacon and deaconesses, uh, either for the first time or the second time. Thank you for serving the church, and thank you for sitting up close like this. I know we reserve these seats for you, but normally when we're preaching, these first five rows are vacant. I want all of you to know they're open every Sunday. You can, there's no extra charge for sitting up here. Uh, but thank you for committing your lives to serving the Lord in the ways in which you have been called. But we think of greatness. What are the kinds of things that come to your mind? Well, for me, it's like, well, who won the most titles? Who won the most elections? Who made the most money? Or who scored the most points? Or built the greatest buildings or cities? Or maybe built the fastest race car? or the biggest organization of whatever kind it is, or commanded the largest army into battle and won. Or maybe a greatness is measured by a best-selling author. It's the top of the New York Times bestseller list for year after year. Or maybe someone who invents a new technology for the benefit of others and has changed the world by doing that. Or maybe even finding cure, a cure for a disease. Those names kind of come to our minds. When I think of what they call the GOAT, the greatest of all time, some of you may have some debate about who the best basketball player of all time is, but that's pretty well settled in Chicago, isn't it? Michael Jordan. Won six championships. It just kind of is automatic. Tom Brady. Is he the best quarterback there's ever been? Not as many people nodding here on that one. Okay, baseball. Is it Babe Ruth? Is it Willie Mays? Hank Aaron? Alex Rodriguez? Or is it uh, anybody else? We have statistical measurements where we evaluate greatness, and we give these people great adulation and almost adoration. The problem with worldly greatness is that it's only available to a very few. Very few people are that rich or born into royalty or beautiful enough, have the powerful personality that are privileged. We look at them and not very many people are actually highly skilled enough or talented to have phenomenal physical prowess as athletes do, or mental genius as many business and, and other leaders have, or business savvy, or maybe just some people are dumb lucky and inherit a fortune. But Jesus defined a kind of greatness that is within the grasp and the reach of every human being. The poor, the uneducated, underprivileged in different ways, the physically insignificant, in fact, the physically or mentally challenged can reach the kind of greatness that Jesus calls us to. The not-so-pretty people of the world can reach these levels of greatness that Jesus is talking about. You see, this greatness is a simple choice that any human being can make, regardless of their position or power or socioeconomic status. Divine greatness is not being like Mike, it's being like Jesus. Speaking of the elite and royalty, there's a wonderful story some years back, you might have read this, about the king and queen of Sweden who were attending the 1980 uh, Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York. They were trying to get into the ice hockey game where the Swedish national team, their team, was playing. And they were stopped by the ticket taker because their tickets were another game on another day. The king said that the correct tickets were in his car, and he asked if they might be allowed to enter without the correct tickets. He said, could you make an exception for us, please? He said, you see, I'm the king of Sweden. The ticket taker responded, sure you are. And I suppose this is the queen of Sweden, too. <laughs> well, the king and queen of Sweden went back to their car to get the correct tickets, only to see that it was being towed away. <laughs> Welcome to New York. But friends, at the doorway of heaven, Everyone 
will leave behind their earthly possessions, earthly accomplishments, their position, their authority, their worldly accomplishments, all their assets, their pedigree, and their human, ped, uh, human bloodline will be meaningless in heaven. The things that will be applauded and recognized there will be what Jesus teaches us in the passage we're considering. How many kind, selfless, unselfish, loving, caring deeds did you do in secret that no one saw? That will gain the applause of the one on the throne and those that have gone before us. See, Jesus was different. People couldn't get their heads around him. His focus was on the poor, on the downtrodden, on the ones who didn't seem to be successful in the world of his time. Years ago on Candid Camera, one of my favorite shows growing up, how many of you remember Candid Camera? Great show. Some children were used as an experiment about unselfishness. Imagine that. The children were placed by themselves, each one, in a room with a plate of cookies, one of which was much larger than the others. They were left with the instruction that they could take a cookie if they liked. And of course, each of those kids took the big one. One boy was challenged as to why he took the biggest cookie. The host, Alan Funt, which I loved him as well, said to the boy, all you left me to eat was a little cookie. I would have eaten a little cookie and given you the biggest one. Without a blink, the boy responded, then you got the one you wanted. You see, the power structures of the world can never offer everyone what they want. Those in power get what they want. Those subject to those in power simply don't. By contrast, the principle of service exemplified by the life of Christ, how he lived amongst us, offers hope to everyone. When we find more pleasure in serving than in being served, everyone gets what they want. For most of us, the way Jesus defines greatness seems strange, or the opposite of what we grew up with. To be serving and thinking truly of others is better than us and making others' needs more important to us, well, that just seems unnatural, doesn't it? This mindset, this attitude, this life posture is completely foreign to the human race. Why? Because we're all born with a selfish, me-first, self-centered gene. It doesn't take long, and kids, you figure it out pretty quickly. They want something, it's mine, I want that. Why can't I have what I want? That was not taught to them, it's just innate. But Jesus came from another world. He wasn't born, he was born physically in this world, took on our physical nature, but he had a completely different natural disposition. Actually, it was a supernatural nature that he brought in. His nature and being and ways were so foreign to everyone that encountered him on earth that people just didn't plain know what to do with him. They didn't know. So they crucified him. Speaking of doing something unnatural, I know most of you are wondering why I've got a tennis racket up here. Um, I was born right-handed. I don't know how many of you are righty versus lefty, but I did everything right-handed. I played tennis. I played baseball. Once had a, um, about a 100-plus mile an hour right-handed serve that I could blow by most people. In fact, knock the racket out of hands of people occasionally. I had such a good serve. At a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, my right hand was, was my ticket to ride, right? But a while back, due to some significant injuries in my right shoulder and my hand, my doctor, who was doing some rehab on my shoulder, said, don't use your right arm until we're done with rehab. And he didn't tell me how long that was going to take. He gave me a lot of therapy to do. But I love playing tennis. I've been playing competitive tennis uh, for the last couple of years, a couple times a week with my younger brother, Paul, and I didn't want to give it up. So I decided I was going to try and play tennis left-handed. Never tried that? 
taking your offhand? Well, I got out there thinking, I can't be that bad. Well, friends, I was terrible. I could sometimes hit, I tried to learn a left-handed forehand. I tried to learn a two-handed backhand, which I've sort of learned, but serving? Try serving a ball or throwing a ball with your offhand. It's just very awkward. So I was going to take a ball and throw it up and serve it out down the center aisle here. Um, but I don't want to hit anybody. And actually, Andrew, our AV Tech marvelous young man who's back here behind the curtain, so to speak, he said maybe you could stand down that center aisle and put an apple on top of his head. Want to have him come out? <laughs> I said that if I aimed that way, it'd probably go into the choir over here. It was, it was un it's unnatural for me doing something that I don't have the muscle memory to do. I've never had all the coordination. That's what learning to serve as a true servant is like for most of us. It's hard. It's difficult. But friends, learning to be a servant and working on it hard is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Ultimately, my brother Paul, who's a very good tennis player, we played a few times. He was patient with me, playing entirely left-handed. The first time we played, I just had the goal of winning one game. I won one game. It was 6-0, 6-1. Second time, I said, I want to win two games. It was 6-1, 6-1. Actually got that. Third time, I won three games. Fourth time, I won a couple more. And believe it or not, I don't know if he was having a really bad day, but I won a set from entirely left-handed. But my left-handed game is still pretty ugly. But friends, serving in humility, it doesn't come natural to any of us. It's a transforming work of the Holy Spirit only that can transform us into the image of Jesus. So be patient with yourself as you learn to serve because God's being patient with you. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, servanthood implies diligence, faithfulness, loyalty, and humility. Servants don't compete or grandstand or polish their image or grab the limelight. They know their job, they admit their limitations, and they do what they do quietly and consistently. Author Gail Irwin wrote a little book called The Jesus Style. I commend it to your reading. It's still in print. He captured it this way. He says, A servant's job is to do all they can to make life better for others, to free them to be everything they can be. A servant's first interest is not themselves, but others. Yet enslavement is not what I'm talking about. Servanthood is a loving choice we make to minister to others. It is not the result of coercion or coercion's more subtle form, manipulation. You see, a good servant is not compulsively driven, but is instead wisely driven by loving choices. Erwin goes on to say this, I've come to one conclusion about servanthood. It often means making very difficult and personally costly decisions to maintain what is truly best for someone else. Sometimes we must simply accept the sorrow of having our insides torn or melted as the situation dictates. Serving is not always comfortable. It's not always a feel-good experience. But when we're motivated by love, we have a power greater than our sinful nature. The power of the Holy Spirit within us is there to transform us and lead us in these opportunities that God has already gone before us to create so that we can learn to serve as Jesus served. Pastor Bill Johnson captured this way. He said, in my own pursuit of God, I often became preoccupied with me. It was easy to think about that being constantly aware of my faults and weakness was humility. It's not. 
If I'm the main subject talking incessantly about my weaknesses, I have entered into the most subtle form of pride. So whoever wants to be first in God's economy must reorient their thinking and think, who can I serve? Who else can I help? Who else's life can I actually make better? Well, this is a foreign concept or hard for us to grasp, though we've been many of us Christians for many, many years. Take hope in knowing that the first century apostles who were around Jesus Christ for three solid years, they were in close proximity to watch how he loved people, watch how he served people, to hear his teachings firsthand and be able to ask him questions privately, the much of which is not recorded in the scripture. Say, what do you mean by this, Jesus? What's, what are you going? I want you to understand, Jesus had to give this specific teaching at least four times that are recorded in the gospels to that same group of 12 people. They still didn't get it. They were missing it so badly that even at the Last Supper, where Jesus chose, if you look in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and forward to 17 in particular, and the other Gospel messages, at the Last Supper, Jesus chose very specifically his last instructions to those apostles before the crucifixion. And this subject came up yet again. Why? Because those apostles, first of all, had failed the most simple task that anybody would do is to wash the feet of their guests. They still had dirty feet and they're going to the table. That's going to the table with dirty hands with COVID germs on them in our terms. Okay? No, we wash up. We are sanitizing up. They also, at the Last Supper, the 12 apostles are still arguing about who is the greatest. They couldn't figure out Jesus' teaching. They hadn't gotten it. Jesus would often say to his first century disciples in that setting, are you guys still so dull? How can you not get it? How can you not understand? I've shown it to you, but it came up again at the Last Supper. And this is what the Gospel of John records. Because none of their feet had been washed, they were down, they're sitting and they don't sit at dinner table or their feet were unexposed. They're laying down next to each other, basically on the ground as they ate. It was a necessity. But Jesus washed their feet. To calm the argument about who was the greatest, he took off his outer garments, the scriptures tell us, and he got a basin and a towel and went over and washed each of their feet. And when he had finished, he said these in verse 12 and following, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, God, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And then this key verse. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I'm going to repeat that. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Then we know that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the sacrament which we still celebrate this day on his way to the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. The washing of feet was not a pleasant task. I um, have never, I've had my feet washed a few times at a, a Monday, Thursday service. And I suspect how many of you have had, been part of a foot washing and knew that your feet were going to be washed? Did you possibly trim your toenails? Did you get a pedicure maybe? Did you make sure you washed your feet and had clean socks? Of course you did. 
There was no dirt. There was no any way that needed to be washed. But these apostles, they were out in the dust. They were walking in streets of dust about that deep, most cases, which had all kinds of animal uh, feces and everything else. It was a mess. It needed to be done. But friends, instead of serving each other, those apostles, none of them wanted to wash the feet. They were arguing about thrones in heaven. Who's going to be Jesus' favorite? I'm his favorite. He likes me the most. John could have easily said, well, he gave me a spot right next to him at the Last Supper after all. But Jesus showed a different kind of greatness to them. And he said, I want you to follow my example. Don't be like everyone else, he said. Gene Wilkes in his book, Jesus on Leadership, captures it this way. Jesus did not come to gain a place of power. He did not come to defeat his human enemies. He did not come to overthrow an unjust government. Jesus came to show us the heart of God. His entire message and ministry on earth was to show selfish, power-hungry people like you and me what love looks like. As he knelt before Judas that night, Jesus showed us a love that no human can conceive on his own a love that is brutally honest about what is going on, but still kneels before us to lay down his life so that we can be free from the sin that infects us. Jesus loves you as he loved Judas. Friends, if we're missing that, we're missing the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, a few years later, penned these words in Philippians chapter 2, capturing again the mindset of Jesus. He says in chapter 2, verse 3 and following, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And here's that key verse again, that concept again in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Think about others the way Jesus thinks about you who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's a tall order. But not just think like Jesus, not just read about him, not just memorize scriptures, not say creeds, not sing songs, but to actually live the way Jesus lived. Max Licato, one of my favorite authors, captures what Jesus did when he left heaven and came to earth in these words. Untethered by time, God sees all. Vagabonds and ragamuffins all, he saw us before we were born and he loves what he sees. Flooded by emotion, overcome with pride, the star maker turns to us one by one and says, you are my child. I love you dearly. I'm aware that someday you'll turn away from me. You'll walk away. But I want you to know I've already provided a way back. And to prove it, he did something extraordinary. Stepping from the throne, he removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered the dark, wet womb. He whom worshipped, where angels worshipped, nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant and was birthed into a cold night and then slept on cow's hay. Can anything make me stop loving you, God asks. 
Watch me speak your language. Sleep on your earth and feel your hurts. Behold the maker of sight and sound as he sneezes, coughs, and blows his nose. You wonder if I understand how you feel. Look into the dancing eyes of the kid in Nazareth. That's God walking to school. Ponder the toddler at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last. Find your answer on the splintered cross on a craggy hill. That's me, you see, up there. Your maker, your God, nail-stabbed and bleeding, covered in spit and sin-soaked. That is your sin I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That's your resurrection I'm living. That's how much I love you. Well, friends, those first century disciples had a hard time grasping Jesus' teaching. And I think us 21st century disciples and believers have equally hard or even more difficulty, find it more difficult, because in our American culture we are taught so differently. A servant or a slave does what the master asks them to do without arguing. They do their master's wish. It becomes their command. And when the master is Jesus... We can serve him wholeheartedly or willingly, but we need to do what he asks us to do. Some might respond to the requests or demands of Scripture and maybe Jesus even saying it to them personally and through the Word. Well, that's not my job. Ask someone else, Jesus. I'm busy. I'm not very good at that. It's not my gift, so find someone else. Oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That takes me out of my comfort zone, so I'll I'll take a pass on that one, Jesus. I'm too busy with my real priorities, the things that are most important to me. Well, friends, how many times have we, by our inaction or indifference, pushed away Jesus' requests to us? We all do it, unthinking. He's simply asking us to follow him, to be led by him, and to allow his Holy Spirit to transform us into servants just like him. King Duncan, Pastor King Duncan and writer said it this way, too many of us Christians have changed our theology into meology, meaning that my real Christian concern is for me, not for thee. Too many, to many people, the church is to serve me, to meet my needs, a place to seek my salvation, to worship my God. That's meology. It's not concerned with the needs of others. It's been said, if serving is below you, leadership is above you. I want to close with sharing a few thoughts about what a servant mindset actually looks like. If there's a job that no one wants to do, a servant says, I'll do that job. If there's a student in my school that no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll eat lunch with that student. If there's someone whom everybody mocks and bullies, I'll befriend them and defend them. If I see someone who is lost and cannot help themselves, I will offer every help I can. If there's a parking space that's far away from the church, I'll park in that space. Leave the good spots for others. If there's a service time that's less convenient for others, I'll go to a different one so they can have a better spot. I will present myself to Jesus every single day saying, I am ready to serve you, Lord. What would you have me do for you today? I will yield my time, my talents, my treasures, my interests, my passions, and my aspirations entirely to you, Lord. Have your way. I yield my will.
to yours, to your will being done in and through my life. Those are decisions that are within the grasp of any and every one of us, friends. Servanthood is a decision. We don't have to do it. But God's cultivating in our hearts a want to do these things. Friends, I believe that one day the true great people in this earth will be revealed, and that will be in heaven. It won't be the people we hear about in the news. It won't be people that are famous in the eyes of people. It will be those single parents, especially mothers who, with multiple children, take on two jobs just to make ends meet. It'll be children who later in life take care of ailing parents for weeks or years or even decades, throwing aside other pursuits to care for those that brought them into the world. Spouses who love and care for an ailing spouse, again, maybe for decades, serving daily, quietly, which no one sees. And a thousand other ways we're doing things in secret. The God who sees in secret is recording all of that. Jesus said to us, even if we give a cup of cold water to a child, we will not lose our reward in heaven. I want to close with a simple poem by Ruth Calkin. It says this, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how I eagerly speak for you at a woman's club. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study, but how would I react? I wonder. If you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. I wonder that about myself. You see what pastors do, some of it, and that's a form of serving, but what are all the things that God's calling us to do this very day that no one will see? My encouragement to each of us is if we open our eyes, we'll see them. If we yield our hearts before the Lord Jesus, we'll walk in those good works which he's prepared for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the power in your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit which you bestowed upon us. We ask you to move in us to follow your example in all our ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.